Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. A few weeks ago, Pastor Ben introduced our annual sermon series, Voices in the Wilderness, which intends to train our attention on global voices that articulate the theological visions of the oppressed. And last Sunday, through Ben's sermon, we were introduced to the witness of indigenous theology and a primary focus within indigenous theology, the Harmony Way. The Harmony Way is a vision of life which places balance, reciprocity, and respect for all things. I love that. Respect for all things as the central components of maintaining the wholeness of our lives in our place. When I heard Ben state this indigenous vision for life, I was struck by its immense beauty. The Harmony Way is a vision of life which places balance, reciprocity, and respect for all things as central components of maintaining the wholeness of our lives in our place. That means in the location that we find ourselves living our lives. Could you imagine a way of being Christian that envisions balance and equal distribution of weight among everyone? A way of being Christian that envisions reciprocity, the exchanging of things with others for mutual, mutual benefit. A way of being Christian that envisions respect for all things. That is so beautiful. It does something in my heart. It, it moves me. When I heard Ben talk about it, I felt something break open. But as Christian people in Portland in 2023, it is a strange concept, isn't it? It's an unfamiliar concept. And that's why I think it's such a difficult concept for us to consider embodying in our Christian lives. Which makes me want to ask and to explore this morning, why? Why are things as beautiful as balance, reciprocity, and respect for all things so strange for Christian life here in Portland in 2023? Why is balance, reciprocity, and respect for all things so unfamiliar to Christian life here in Portland in 2023? I have a few possibilities for us to consider, and all of them have to do with the human propensity to center ourselves as the primary characters in this thing that we're all experience, experiencing called existence. Last week, Ben mentioned that a group of Pearl people read and discussed Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass. It was a lovely conversation that we had together. Just last week, Kimmerer was interviewed by the New York Times in an article titled, You Don't Have to Be Complicit in Our Culture of Destruction. To be honest, I was surprised by some of the initial questions by the one giving the interview. It seemed to me like they were intending to put Kimmerer on her heels, just right at the start. Here's what I mean. Question number one. There's a certain kind of writing about ecology and balance that can make the natural world seem like this placid place of beauty and harmony. But the natural world is also full of suffering and death. Do you think your work, which is so much about the beauty and harmony side of things, romanticizes nature? 
Kimmer then offers a really thoughtful response. Question number two. But in braiding sweetgrass, you write about nature is capable of showing us love. If that's true, doesn't it also have to be capable of showing us the opposite? And I just love Kimmerer's response. She replies, the answer that comes to mind is that it's not all about us. (laughs) I'll come back to that in just a moment. The interviewer replies, what? They laugh, and Kimmerer finishes her thought. Some of these cycles of creation and destruction that promote renewal and change might be bad for us, but we're one of 200 million species. They might be bad for other species too, but over evolutionary time, we see that major changes that are destructive are also opportunities for adaption and renewal and deriving new evolutionary solutions to tough problems. What I love about this moment in the interview is that Kimmerer is fielding these questions from a point of view in which humans are not at the center. That's what she's getting at when she responds. The answer that comes to mind is that it's not all about us. You see, there's this modern day glimpse. This is a modern day glimpse into the harmony way of balance. That's what she's getting at. The harmony way in which in which balance, reciprocity, and respect for all things, all things, is more central than merely the human things. Because baked into this indigenous perspective is a decentered humanity that exists not in our Western hierarchy of human values where humans are at the very top, but rather in a relationship of a circle of community in which, as Ben noted last week when he quoted Clara Sue Kidwell from the book A Native American Theology, people are constantly reminded of the presence of deity as they pass by rock formations or rivers or groves of trees. Thus, space, rather than time, becomes the evidence of God's presence in the world in an immediate manner. It's as though the divine is awash in all that we experience here in the world as humans. You see, this is a perspective in which the divine is in and through it all, not just in and especially through us humans. But again, this is a strange and unfamiliar concept for Christian people in Portland in 2023. Here are a few thoughts on why I think that is. First, evolutionary psychology tells us that human existence is due, in many ways, to tribalism. That's to say, your existence, my existence, is the result of ancestors who were exceptional, exceptional at prioritizing themselves. And because our ancestors prioritized themselves, that is to say, because our ancestors centered themselves in the world, we are here in our lives, in our privilege today. We are the result of millennia of self-preservation and centering that ensured a tribe of self-preservation and centering that ensured eventually, over time, lineage that gave rise to our very lives. And so deep inside of our prehistoric bones, like baked into our DNA as humans, abides an evolutionary fear, an evolutionary concern, worry that if we were to be decentered, we humans may not survive. I think that's one reason the harmony way which places balance, reciprocity, and respect for all things is so strange and unfamiliar. And here's a second thought. Baked into Western Christianity is an inherent angst against science. Have you ever felt that? Now, to be clear, it hasn't always been this way. 
thinking historically, prior to the 16th century, the church and science actually worked together. And many scientists, perhaps the majority of scientists, were actually Christian in the Western world. However, when the Polish astronomer Nicholas Copernicus postulated a heliocentric theory, that is to say that the sun was at the center of the solar system, not the earth, a fissure began to work its way between faith and science like a crack in a windshield. To this day, that crack is as apparent as ever when one thinks about Christianity's suspicion about science and evolution and medicine. It's interesting to note, isn't it, that at the genesis of Christianity's scientific suspicion is Christianity's unwillingness to be decentered in the solar system. That's where it all sprang up from. I think that's the second reason that the Harmony Way, which places balance, reciprocity, and respect for all things, is so strange and unfamiliar. And here's a final thought. In and around the time of Jesus' Jewish life, culture was dominated by Greek and Roman philosophy which explained a separation between the physical and the spiritual. That is to say, flesh, human flesh, and the substance of this world was something less than soul. The perfect, the good, the eternal, the divine. And from this foundation, among other reasons, that the idea of leaving this corrupt world, the idea of leaving these corrupt bodies, It's from this Greek and Roman philosophy that that rising to something better, going far away to something else, came up out of the waters. Why do we Christians struggle to appreciate the harmony way in which balance, reciprocity, and respect for all things exist as central components that maintain wholeness in our lives, in our place? Well, I'm sure there are more reasons that could be surfaced, but as a place to start, we have a propensity to center ourselves for survival. Our religious history rejects a scientific decentering of humans. And our philosophical foundation exists in which our bodies in this earth are corrupt and need to be removed. That's where it all finds itself grounded in. All of these reasons play into that which makes the Harmony Way strange and unfamiliar to Western Christianity. And yet... Indigenous theology stands in the gap like Kimmerer's prophetic voice drumming over and over again. It is not all about us. It's just not. And this, although strange and unfamiliar, is good, so, so very good. And it's actually wonderfully supported biblically, historically, and theologically. Here's what I mean. Standing against our DNA, human proclivity for self-survival at all cost rises Jesus' declarative invitation to follow after me. And what is his invitation to? Self-giving. Self-giving, self-giving, self-giving. And to those who desire to walk in his ways, he invites again and again, come, follow after me. And standing against our DNA human proclivity for safety through tribalism, which has often been used at the very table we feast at every Sunday, is supposed to be an ever-expanding table that includes all people. It's the diverse family of God if we could just open our hearts to one another. And standing against our DNA human proclivity for more and more power to ensure our own standing in the world is the Christian vision of a future city of light in which all people from all nations gather in peace around a throne named love. It's an incredible vision. How good 
is that. And standing against our angst towards science that decenters earth as the center of it all is a prior history in which Christians and science were at one time inextricably united in their effort to talk about life itself. You see, there was a time in which the pursuit of reality and the worship of divinity were combined in effort. With this in mind, biology tells us that we are systems comprised of cells. Cells are comprised of molecules. Molecules are comprised of atoms. And atoms are comprised of particles. And particles, we are told, are essentially bits and pieces of energy. That is to say, we are a complex relationship of energy. And here's what's so astonishing. This is true about everything else in the entire world. The atoms and particles that make you, you, are made of the same stuff that makes all of the other stuff. How's that for scientific language? And all of this stuff, science tells us, derived its essence from a very hot, very dense single point in space. And so, this rock whirling around the sun and the sun, and the stars, and the trees, and the waters, and Americans, and Germans, and Ethiopians, and Russians, and Syrians, at our most fundamental level, it is all atoms, and particles, and complex relationship of energy. Despite race, religion, sexual orientation, and classification as human, and non-human, person, animal, rock, and rainbow, it is all intimately, inherently, and intrinsically connected. And as diverse, divergent, and different as you feel from this person or that person, from this culture or that culture, from this conviction or that perspective, we are far more, incalculably more connected than we are estranged, whether we realize it or not. And today, scientific theologians like Ilya Delio, please read her, or John Polkinghorne, please read him, are calling us back to the table to learn and grow as faith and science engage in a conversation to explain the mystery that is our existence. It's an exciting time, really. Like no other, probably, since before the 16th century. Science and post-Newtonian findings are revealing subatomic mysteries and connections that Christian mystics have sung about for millennia but are now being understood and explained scientifically. It is truly divine. And finally, against Greek and Roman philosophy declaring bad bodies, bad world, is the Christian theology of incarnation. Incarnation from the Latin incarnatio, literally incarne, in flesh. God and Jesus talking. God and Jesus walking. God and Jesus eating, crying, suffering, dying. You see, suddenly God in incarnation, incarnate, is no longer up there, out there, abstract, separate from it all. And no longer is God merely spirit calling us out and away from our dirty flesh in this dirty world. In Jesus, we bear witness to the fullness of divinity within humanity. Divinity within humanity, talking, walking, eating, crying, suffering, and dying. And suddenly we find ourselves, every one of us, represented in the life of Christ. For who doesn't communicate or move about or eat or cry or suffer or die? But I don't think our theology of incarnation has gone far enough. There's this beautiful old theological word that used to describe the incarnation. It was condescension. Now, today we think of condescension very negatively, don't we? Don't be condescending. That's condescending. But it's this, it's this rich, ancient theological word. 
Put in terms of incarnation, condescension is really incredible. God condescends itself. That is to say, God decenters itself and enters into this material world. Incarnate, God in a womb. Incarnate, God suckling for life. Incarnate, God growing in wisdom and stature. Incarnate, God playing and bathing and eating and sleeping and crying and dying and rising. This is magnificent. And incarnate, we see throughout the Gospels how much Jesus loves this world. He adores the world. In fact, for Jesus, the world is a primary vehicle into the reality of divinity itself. He uses stories about fish and trees and bushes and manure and water and bread and wine to talk about divine life here. And this line of theological inquiry quickly brings us to the idea of panentheism. Panentheism is similar to pantheism, but different. Pantheism is the idea that everything is a God, which, which somewhat falls outside Christian monotheism. But within Christian monotheism is this mystic notion of panentheism in which God is found in everything. Could you imagine? If that were a person's perspective, then that would make everything utterly and wonderfully holy, wouldn't it? Perhaps it could even transfigure the mundane moments of life into divine experiences of overwhelming gratitude. On top of a mountain, rolling out of bed, stretching your toes, climbing a tree, listening to the sound waves of a song that somehow mysteriously moves this thing inside of you which can cause water to fall out of your eyeballs and roll down your cheek. These are all kinds of moments, human moments that have the potential to bring human beings to their knees maybe even to their faces on the ground and surrender to a transcendent, imminent, and present God whose energy pulses within the fabric of all creation. And so in one of my all-time favorite poems, the great Persian poet Hafiz writes, and if you've been at Pearl for a long time, I will read this until I retire. Slipping on my shoes, boiling water, toasting bread, buttering the sky. That should be enough contact with God in one day to make anyone crazy. <laughs> and this is why I wanted us to sing in today's responsorial song the words, Lord, this is the people that longs to see your face. Because it is altogether possible for us to see the incarnate, condescended face of God in everything in every moment, moving us to bow down, to lean forward, and to kiss life itself with our very lips. Because it's not all about us. It's about all of this. This mysterious, miraculous, provocative, surprising, depressing, encouraging, exciting, sorrowful thing called existence. And every breath is a gift to behold it all. Every moment, an opportunity to bask in the harmony way of balance, reciprocity, and respect for all things as central components for maintaining the wholeness of our lives and our place. Truly, the shalom, the peace of God at hand. In Braiding Sweetgrass, Kimmerer describes a moment in which she was reticent to talk about a Thanksgiving address that's used by the Iroquois nation. They told her again and again, though, that their words were meant to be shared as a gift to the whole world, 
They said, we've, in fact, we've been waiting to share this with everyone. Please use it. And so she decided to talk about it a bit in her book. The Iroquois Thanksgiving address is an address that's often spoken to begin a meeting or they'll often recite it before negotiations with other nations. And it's really, really long, 19 stanzas, followed every time by the same refrain. Now our minds are one. I'd like to conclude this sermon by reading the first line of each stanza. And I'd like to ask that you respond after each sentence, if you agree, with the harmonious refrain, now our minds are one. Today we have gathered and we look upon the faces around us. We see that the cycles of life continue. Now our minds are one. We are thankful to our mother, the earth, for she gives us all that we need for life. Now our minds are one. We give thanks to all the waters of the world for quenching our thirst, providing us with strength, and nurturing life for all beings. Now our minds are one. We turn our minds to all the fish life in the water. Now our minds are one. Now we turn toward the vast fields of plants. Now our minds are one. When we look about us, we see that the berries are still here, providing us with delicious foods. Now our minds are one. With one mind, we turn to honor and thank all the food plants we harvest from the garden who feed us with such abundance. Now our minds are one. Now we turn to all the medicine plants of the world. Now our minds are one. We gather our minds together to send our greetings and our thanks to all the animal life in the world who walk about with us. Now our minds are one. We now turn our thoughts to the trees. Now our minds are one. We put our minds together as one and thank all the birds who move and fly about over our heads. Now our minds are one. We are thankful to the powers we know as the four winds. Now our minds are one. Now we turn to the west where our grandfathers, the thunder beings, live. Now our minds are one. We now send our greetings and our thanks to our eldest brother, the sun. Now our minds are one. We put our minds together to give thanks to our oldest grandmother, the moon, who lights the nighttime sky. Now our minds are one. We give our thanks to the stars who are spread across the sky like jewels. Now our minds are one. We gather our minds together to greet and thank the enlightened teachers who have come to help us throughout the ages. Now our minds are one. Now we turn our thoughts to the Creator, the Great Spirit, and send our greetings and our thanks for all the gifts of creation. Now our minds are one. We have now arrived at the place where we end our words. Now our minds are one. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, 
or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.